If you have a Bible, if you would turn in it, please, to Genesis chapter 21. And if you're using one of the pew Bibles, if you want to turn to page 15, you'll, you'll be uh, where we're going to be this morning. Uh, through the generosity of an organization, I had the opportunity to attend a conference in Indianapolis for a few days this past week. Uh, but I feel funny saying but because I received, I, I received an awful lot. But in the story, but is the right word to use. But with the limitations of free travel arrangements that are, you know, you're on the receiving end, sometimes when it's free, there's some challenges, like you get to spend between eight and nine hours between two airports killing time. Um, Now, for different reasons, I've had long layovers before, and so I've kind of found sort of coping mechanisms and coping skills, but I will admit, after a while… There's this switch inside me that seems to flick, and it's like, we got to go. And, and I must admit, on Wednesday night when I was supposed to leave at 9.55 and we were sitting on the plane and we weren't going anywhere, I do better waiting in the terminal than I do on the plane just for total confession time. I, I do better in there, but it's like, we got to go, we got to go. And, and I started thinking a little bit about Abraham and Sarah. I mean, after 25 years of waiting, I kind of wondered, was there a, did that same switch kind of get flicked in them of, we've got to get this done, we've got to bring this to an end? Here's the thing about restoration we've been talking about, is restoration is rarely fast. In fact, most of the time, the way anything involved with restoring seems to take place is you could use the word slow. It takes time. One of the challenges that I think comes with being a follower of Christ, and what I mean by a follower of Christ, is a person who's come to the point, some of the songs that we sang, recognize, I'm a sinner, and I want to turn away from my sin, and I want to turn to God, and I trust the Lord Jesus as my Savior, okay? That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. One of the challenges for followers of Christ, other people too, but in a unique way for followers of Christ, We struggle, we have a tension because our circumstances and the speed with which we want those circumstances solved and fixed don't always align with God's timing and God's speed. That's just a part of life. Now, let me very clearly say that I firmly believe everything the Bible affirms but there are certain phrases the Bible uses that sometimes seem to me to be exceptionally true. If you're in the midst of what Abraham and Sarah were in, the words that are used repeatedly in a number of psalms, at least four or five psalms, how long, O Lord, how long? I mean, those just seem sort of extra true, like, God, when is this going to end? God, when are you going to show up and and do something? Lord, how long am I going to have to wait? For Abraham and Sarah, we're knocking on 25 years. If we're going to experience restoration in our lives, we need to do, and we'll define this a little bit, but we're going to need to endure in hope. We don't just wait. If you're a follower of Christ, we don't just wait. 
We need to endure and hope. But the question is, how do you do that? How do you actually do that? Our daughter was commenting the fact that, you know, if you include kindergarten, she's been in school for 11 years. And I misquoted myself yesterday. I've been in school 27 years. I forgot about kindergarten. Need to add that in. So 27 years of my life I spent in school. And I don't think I ever had a class on hope. Here's how you hope. I don't think I ever had a class on here's how you endure in hope. So how do we do that? As we've spent time going through the story of Abraham, I've become more and more convinced that enduring in hope is something all of us are going to be called on to do. It's going to be a part of life for us. Now, the circumstances that create that for different people may be different. And for some of you, you may have to endure in hope because you're just like Abraham and Sarah. You are waiting for that child. Maybe that's your experience. For others, it might be waiting for a job. For others, part of the enduring and waiting might be you've got to go through a difficult medical treatment or, or maybe you have an illness and it's just hanging on and hanging on and hanging on. Or maybe for you, the, the thing you've got to wait through is that some terrible evil has taken place and it's not resolved yet. And the wait just sort of goes on and on and on. You'd like it to be done, but it's not done yet. You've got to keep waiting. You've got to keep enduring in hope. And the reason we mention the word hope and why I say we don't just wait, why we need to endure in hope, is that the Bible will tell us in places like Romans 5, 5, that hope is a gift that God gives us. Hope is meant to mark our lives. If you're a follower of Christ, if you've trusted the Lord Jesus, hope is to be something that should be about our lives. Our lives should be marked in that sense by hope. But how do we endure in hope? How do we do that? Well, I think the story of Genesis 21 actually takes us there. And so I want to do this morning, basically I'm going to talk about four things. But there's sort of four things or four lessons that I think Genesis 21 teaches us to really help us hope, to help us endure in hope. Kind of like if we grab these lessons, we'd be able to do this. Okay, lesson number one, how do you endure in hope? Lesson number one is we need to recognize that God visits and works. Okay, we need to recognize God shows up and goes to work. Verse one of Genesis chapter 21 reads, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Now, up to this point in the big Abraham story, there'd been a lot of talk, okay? We'd heard a lot, we've heard a lot of times, you're going to have a child talk. They've said it again and again and again. You're going to have a child. It's kind of repeated a number of times. But now, after all the talk, God shows up. God comes to do something. But God, when God visits, He doesn't just kind of cruise through town, kind of hang out for a little while. No, when God shows up, He literally rolls up His sleeves and goes to work. What's taking place in verse 1 is that God did what God had promised He would do. Now, the interesting thing about verse 1 is in some ways what's taking place there is, is, is it's like a very matter-of-fact way to say it. 
God did this. God showed up. God worked. It's a little bit poetic. Some of the scholars will say, yeah, the verse is a little bit poetic, but basically God just showed up and did his thing. And for you and I, we can just kind of read that and go, okay, got the fact. Let's move on in the story. But what I don't want us to miss, and this is a little bit of a play on words, I don't want us to miss the weight, as in W-E-I-G-H-T, the weight of verse 1. Now, the reason I'm saying we, I don't want us to miss the weight is because biblically the word glory is the word weight. That's where it comes from. Glory comes from weight. And I don't want us to miss the incredible glory that verse 1 kind of, excuse me, starts the Bible spewing out. Because if we're going to endure in hope, we need to see that God visits and God works. Now, whenever the Bible talks about God visiting, when God visits, when this expression is used, this kind of picture is painted, it always means God does what theologians call God visits with salvific attention. I just wanted to use some fancy words today. I spent time at a conference, so you hear some fancy words, so now I'm going to share all my fancy words. I got one more later in the message, and then we're kind of done, so hang in there. But salvific attention means when God visits, God does something in the direction of salvation. Okay, when God visits, He's got to do this. So part of what I want you to make sure you understand in this verse, to see the full weight of it, is that verse 1 is telling us that God showed up and goes to work. He does something to Sarah. Why? Because for a 90-year-old woman to have a baby requires the intervention of God. Even more than that, the only way the incredible plan of God was going to happen was if 90-year-old Sarah had a baby. If God doesn't show up, this doesn't happen. Okay? So if you're getting ready, we start Holy Week today, and if you're thinking about, wow, the wonder of Good Friday and the wonder of Easter, the wonder of the resurrection, if God doesn't show up here, none of this happens. This is huge. Not only that, but if you were to go to Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, it will say, and God visited the people of Bethlehem. What that means is they had had a famine. And the famine came to an end because God showed up and visited. And that story then leads to Naomi, who used to live in Bethlehem, but went away to Moab, came back. Actually, she didn't come this direction. She would have come this direction. And she brought with her her widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. She didn't want to bring her daughter-in-law back, but her daughter-in-law didn't give her much choice. And then Ruth marries Boaz. And Ruth and Boaz had a baby named Obed. That name may or may not mean much to you, but he is the grandfather of King David. Okay, God visited, did some work, and moved things toward salvation. Jump ahead and even farther in generations, you come to the story of Luke chapter 1 where Mary becomes pregnant through, again, God visiting. 
not to mention the baby born from that pregnancy, the Lord Jesus. Okay, verse 1 has an enormous weight, and we need to recognize it. We need to recognize God shows up and goes to work. If we're going to start enduring in hope, Part of what needs to go through our minds, part of what we need to do is we need to recognize that, guess what? God visits and God works for our salvation. You see, enduring and hoping is not just about, I just got to hang on just a little longer. You know, it's not like when you're sitting in the plane and they've been sitting on the tarmac and it's like, I just got to hang on a little longer. It's not that. It's recognizing God shows up and God goes to work. And if I can begin to recognize that, maybe something's going to happen inside of me. Lesson number two. If you and I would recognize that God visits and works, that should lead us to respond in some way. Lesson number two would be this. Rejoice in God's faithfulness. If we're going to endure in hope, if we're actually going to do this, we need to rejoice in God's faithfulness. The, the event of God visiting in verse 1 leads to an amazing nine months and then a, literally a fruitful result, you could say. Or maybe, to play a pun on words, a humorous result. Starting in verse 2, read with me. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. To me, those verses are a little odd. I mean, verse 1 was kind of a mere statement of fact. But they've been waiting 25 years Actually, they'd probably been waiting more than that, but specifically because of God's promise, they'd been waiting 25 years for this baby to be born. And verses 2 to 5 read another statement of facts. Let's just, you know, quickly, here's what happened. I was going to use some terms, you know, like verses 2 to 5 read like they were written by a man. Baby was born, da 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 You know, it just matter of fact, a baby was born, Great. Now, it is, it is important that that happened, but it doesn't give you the sense that a miracle took place. It doesn't give you the sense that, that God was faithful. It doesn't kind of go in those directions. It's just kind of, here's what happened. Seems a little odd to me. Now, it is. It's important for us to know the fact Isaac was born. That's huge. And it's important for us to know that Abraham was, was obedient. But what kind of response should there be? What kind of emotion or feeling should, should take place here? Well, look at verses 6 and 7. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Now, another oddity to me in this passage is Abraham's kind of silent at this point. He didn't say really much, but Sarah's not. 
She knows that a response is needed. And, and, and kind of like this promise, the name Isaac means basically he laughs or God laughs. There'd been so much laughter related to this promise being made. I guess it shouldn't be a surprise that once the promise is fulfilled that there should be a laughter, that there should be a response of, let's rejoice in this. This is an amazing thing. God made a promise, and He's faithful to it. I mean, verse 7 kind of draws out the amazingness of this. I mean, who would have said to Abraham at 100 years old, hey, Abraham, your wife's going to be nursing a son? I'll be honest, I have never seen a 90-year-old woman nurse a baby. I remember my grandmother's 90th birthday party. There was a lot of things granny was going to do, like yell into the phone when one of my uncles called. Nursing a baby was nowhere on her radar. She had enough of that in her life already, I guess. But, you know, but here's this amazing thing, and Sarah responds rejoicing. No one would believe it, and yet look what God did. Let's celebrate this. Folks, I honestly believe if you and I are going to endure in hope, we need to realize God shows up. He does go to work, and that should lead us to rejoice. What God did was made a promise, fulfilled it, and we need to rejoice in that. But how do we do that? How, how do we practically kind of rejoice in it? Well, indulge me for a moment in what may seem like a silly analogy, but it popped in my head, so let's go with it. If you want to go forward in a car, you want to drive a car, and most of us would prefer to drive forward, not backwards, but if you want to drive forward in a car, one of the things that needs to be true is your car needs to be filled with the past. Okay, we call gasoline what? Fossil fuel. You've got to have the past in it to go forward. Similar thing. If you want to go forward, okay, hope is a forward thing. If you want to go forward in hope, we need to be filled with God's works from the past. We need to have that, so to speak, in our gas tank. We need to stop and see, look, God promised He's faithful. God promised He's faithful. And when we see that, that should lead us to rejoice. The only way, in essence, you and I can go forward is if our gas tank, so to speak, is filled with the faithful fuel of God's fulfilled promises. One of the reasons why I would say, read the Bible, is to remind ourselves, look at God promised and God fulfilled it. And like Sarah, we should, in essence, laugh at that and rejoice in that. Because if we do, then all of a sudden we can endure in hope. Lesson number three, how do we do this hope thing? Well, we, we've got to recognize God visits and works. And I really do believe we've got to rejoice in God's faithfulness. But then number three, we need to embrace God's best. If we're really going to endure in hope, we've got to embrace God's best. Now, we've already said it. Enduring in hope, waiting, can be hard. I don't think there's any argument on that. But the difficulty is not just because of the time factor. It's not just the time part. Enduring in hope can also be hard because it can be a refining process in our lives. That waiting, enduring thing isn't just about God killing time. 
you know, like God's taking a nap. No, it's very much about there may be things God's doing in us. Look at verses 8 and 9. And the child grew and was weaned. So Isaac's probably around three years old. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Big party. Okay, so think party scene here. Verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. Now there's been a lot of laughter in the whole story of this. In the whole, anytime anything connected to Isaac is taking place, there's laughter. But the laughter here in verse 9 is different. Now it, it is the same word, but there's different kinds of verbs in the Hebrew language and this is a different verb different type of verb, which means this laughing isn't a belly laugh. It's most likely a mocking laugh. Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, which we think is looking back to this incident, actually would refer to it as a kind of persecution, that in some way Ishmael was persecuting, mocking Isaac. Now, just in case you're thinking of doing this. If you mock or persecute the honored guest of a party, not a good idea. It changes the whole atmosphere. And the atmosphere of this party is about to go from being very pleasant to being one of those things where you don't want to be in the room. Okay? How many of you want to be in the room when your parents are having a fight? That's where we're headed. Verse 10. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now you may think, well, Lloyd, you kind of were a little overly dramatic there. The word cast out is an incredibly strong word, okay? Sarah went into mama bear mode big time here. She is coming out with everything she has got. This is not the way it's going to be. You could say she's making a pretty dramatic demand of Abraham in the middle of a party. Puts Abraham in a little tricky spot. So how does he respond? Verse 10, or verse 11, excuse me. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on the account of his son. Sarah's strong words produced a very strong reaction in Abraham. The phrase, very displeasing, is unique. Okay? Elsewhere in the Bible, the word displeasing is used. Okay, and when it says displeasing, don't think, well, they didn't quite get my order at lunch exactly perfect. No, this is kind of extreme. When it says displeasing, you are coming almost unglued. And now we're taking the word very and sticking it on front. Okay, it's as if we've got a fire, we've got a huge bonfire already going, and we decide, hey, let's pour gasoline on it. Boom! 
Okay, there's an explosion that takes place in Abraham right at this moment. When it's just very displeasing, he's ticked off. Not sure if you expect someone to say that in church, but that's what he was. Sarah's words, I think, were heartbreaking to Abraham and it ignited in him an anger that he may not have really understood, but it was there. He's feeling it. Abraham probably thought the problem is Sarah. Why can't she just be happy? He probably thought that she was the issue. I mean, when we feel anger, how many times do we just want to blame somebody? But the anger that we might feel might in fact be an indicator that we need to address some things inside ourselves. In the process of waiting, there may be some refining work that God wants to do in our lives. Look at verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, start there. But God said to Abraham, Do not be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God intervenes into Abraham's anger to kind of help Abraham kind of understand what's going on. You see, his anger really isn't about Sarah and her words about Ishmael and Hagar. It's not really that. God wants Abraham to understand something that he's heard before. The plan of God, what God has laid out, is to come through Isaac, not through Ishmael. That means, by definition, God's best is connected to Isaac. God's identified. This is the best. He's clearly labeled it. He's told Abraham that before. This isn't new revelation. Abraham's heard this before. This is the best, Abraham. If Abraham's going to endure in hope, he's got to embrace God's best, even if that means letting go of something. They ask the question, does that mean that Ishmael's junk and worthless? No, it doesn't mean that. God doesn't view Ishmael that way. Because look at what God says about him in verse 13. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. God says, Abraham, I promise you this. I'm going to make a nation of Ishmael. Ishmael is not a forgotten person. He's not thrown away. He's not evil. He's not all those things. But Abraham, you cannot embrace him as God's best. This scene in some ways is a very refining moment for Abraham. Abraham, what are you going to cling to? Are you going to choose something that's good? 
Or are you going to cling to God's identified best? As we go through life, we might find ourselves somewhat in similar spots. We may have good things that that we want to embrace, but are they God's best? Refining is not necessarily an easy process. But if we're going to endure in hope, we can't avoid it. We're going to have to face it. We're going to have to engage in it. If we're going to have a personal experience of God's restoring work in our lives, us being changed, we are going to have refining moments. Which means if we cling to something that is good, we might always have something we can hang on to. But I think, folks, if we do that, then our hands are full. And we can never embrace or be embraced by God's best. We basically functionally deny ourselves that opportunity. We stop it. Question maybe all of us need to ask ourselves is what are we embracing today? Is the thing you're clinging to good? Or is the thing you're clinging to God's best? I don't in any way want to say that's an easy thing to walk through. But if we really want to endure in hope, we've got to choose what's best. Look at Abraham's choice in verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. How do we endure in hope? We endure in hope by recognizing God visits and works. In response to that, we celebrate that God's faithful. And then we maybe have to come to the place, the tough place, of embracing God's best. And then lesson number four, the fourth lesson, is we need to remember God's promises. How do I keep hanging on? How do I keep enduring in that sense? By remembering God's promises. I feel kind of bad for Hagar. I mean, she kind of got a rotten deal in some ways. And part of it is, how do, you, how do we make sense of it for her? How do we do that? Perhaps this morning you feel like Hagar. Maybe you feel like you're getting a rotten deal in this thing of life. You know, the game of life, you're just spinning that thing and you're not getting anywhere. Whatever it is, millionaire acres is not in your future. You just, I'm getting ripped off. This past week, I listened to a wise man say that we'll probably all, got to use my other big fancy word now, we'll all have different levels of what theologians call common grace. Okay, common grace is kind of God's goodness across all of creation. 
Some of us, in one sense, get more of it. Some of us get less. Now, the truth is, the Bible would say, whatever amount you get, you're supposed to steward what you've been given. But in fairness, in fairness, if you feel like you've gotten a rotten deal, enduring and hope can feel an awful lot like a march to death. It, can't, it doesn't necessarily be, ooh, warm and fuzzy. Okay, verses 15 and 16, jumping into Hagar's sandals, so to speak. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. Okay, Hagar is hurting. I mean, deeply hurting. He said, well, why is she hurting? She is convinced that Ishmael's going to die. And she doesn't want to see it. I don't think a parent ever wants to see a child die. Enduring in hope, trying to get to that place of waiting for more of God's restoring work can put us in some very hard spots. We might be in a spot like Hagar where we just want to give up. Or maybe we figure God's given up on us, so why even try? Although I think that's understandable. Hagar at that point wasn't seeing the whole story. That's why the story doesn't end here. Verse 17, the story continues. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Okay. For, for a reason that's not expressed, we, we don't know why, but Ishmael prays to God in some way, somehow he, he, just, he prays to God. And there's a little bit of play here on words that I, I want you to notice. Okay, the God who hears who God has referred to that in this story earlier back in chapter 16. He's the God who hears. Well, the God who hears heard. And who did the God who hears hear? Someone whose name literally means God hears. That's not insignificant. And because the young man prayed and the God who hears hears, Sent an angel of the Lord to say, an angel of God to say to Hagar, basically, Lloyd's rough paraphrase, Hagar, I know it's bad. I want you to take a deep breath for a second. I want you to remember God listens. Just remember that. Remember your son's name. See, God's gentleness at this point to me is kind of stirring. Sarah wanted to be rid of Hagar, wanted to literally cast her out. But God offers comfort. Hagar wasn't critical to Sarah, but she matters to God. And if you feel like you're in a Hagar spot, please hear that God hears, but God doesn't just hear. There's more of what God does. 
Verse 18. Up. Lift up the boy. Hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Okay, even in the most difficult moments of enduring in hope, hanging on, God is telling her, my promises are still true. Which means if you are in a Hagar spot, you might be thinking, well, promises are great. That, that's, that's nice, but it hurts right now, right where I am. And, and remembering promises, promises seem like they're so far out there. I mean, Ishmael's maybe 17, 18 years old. He has no wife. He has no kids. How can he be a great nation that's so far out there? How can I hang on to his promises? Please understand when we say God's promises, we're not just talking about something in the distance because when God promises when God makes a promise, that means he brings his presence and his resources into that moment. Look at verses 19 and 20. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of what? Of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. If Hagar remembers God's promise, even though it's really hard, all of a sudden she's not alone in the wilderness, is she? Who's right there? God is right there. And God's not just there. He brings his resources. He brings his presence. He brings his comfort. Folks, if you've trusted Christ, the Bible tells us in places like Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit is in our lives. Which means even if you're in a Hagar moment, you're not alone. And if you would remember that God promises, then all of a sudden in verses like Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus says, I'm here. You're not alone. We can keep hoping. Let me try and finish this up by taking it hopefully from the realm of sort of theory. This is what we're theory to how can I in practice actually endure and hope? How do I take these lessons and actually apply them? Let me offer you really quick four statements that I think as you and I go through a day, maybe I've got a hope today, maybe today's a tougher day and I need to remind myself. Four phrases that I think kind of playing off of these might help us, okay? So phrase number one, how can I actually do this is I just encourage you to say, simple thing, ponder Christmas. What's the easiest way for you and I to remember that God visits and works? Christmas, okay? Ponder it. Just ponder what Christmas is. And then in response to that, the second phrase I would suggest would be we need to celebrate Good Friday and Easter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 5, tell us that the events of Good Friday and Easter, the event of Jesus dying on the cross in our place for our sins and rising again happened. They didn't just happen. They happened because God said in advance they would happen. 
Good Friday and Easter are a declaration that God is faithful. Celebrate it. Part of the reason why we have a service is why? So we can sit there and go, I have no social life, so I go to church. No! We gather to celebrate. So ponder Christmas. Celebrate Good Friday and Easter. Third statement, submit to God alone. One of the great temptations every single person faces is we've got to have something, and so we want to cling to something. We want to embrace something. And the truth is there's a lot of good things out there we could embrace. But if you cling to something good, if you embrace something good, you're going to find out that it cannot deliver what only God can. See, you and I need to submit to what God says is best, not to what we think is best. So ponder Christmas, celebrate Good Friday and Easter, submit to God alone. And then the fourth one, just the phrase to keep in your head, is trust Jesus' presence. Okay, I mentioned Matthew chapter 28 just a minute ago. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus ends the gospel of Matthew by saying, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If I would simply remember that phrase, I'm reminding myself of a promise of God. I'm also positioning myself right where God is in his presence. Folks, please understand this. We've done this series because God wants you to experience restoration. We know that because that's really what the Bible tells us about. That's also why, to put it in context, why did we do three Christmas Eve services in the gym? Because God wants to restore us. Why are we going to do a Good Friday service and, and an Easter service this week? Why? Because God wants to restore us. Why did we take the time last fall to do the Greater Than series so we'd move to submit to God in our lives? Why? Because God wants to restore us. And why do we urge you to turn from sin to God and trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior and then live life following Him so that you know you are in His presence, so that you have His resources there? Hope in restoration is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. But God is offering us that. He's offering us hope. So folks, please, ponder Christmas. Celebrate Good Friday and Easter. Submit to God alone. And trust Jesus' presence. Let's pray.